This sermon was recorded online during our season of Shelter in Place in Mountain View, California. We are continuing in this series on the kingdom of heaven. This is what the Gospel of Matthew speaks of. And as you know, as we've been going through the weeks of it, and these are texts that come to us from the lectionary, we are looking at the rule and reign of Christ. When you hear kingdom of heaven, that's what you should be hearing. How is it that Jesus manifests this as the king of kings and the Lord of lords? And we've seen him describe it through his parables. We've seen him enact it through the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000. We saw how he extended the kingdom to the Gentiles through his healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, the Canaanite woman's daughter. And now we come to the kingdom of heaven as the disciples are meant to live it out, following Jesus. And this is our text for, for today. And it's, it's a kind of a dramatic text, isn't it? It starts with a tense scene. Uh, when Sarah was younger, our daughter, like really younger, and she wanted to see various movies when she was 11 or 12, and we tried to see which ones were good. Could she see that one or not? There's a website that describes movies of whether they're, you know, what goes on with them, what kind of language they're using, what kind of uh, other things are going on. And, and one of the categories that was out there was tense scenes, things that had drama to them, things that had some kind of argument going on, things that had a certain... Yeah, anger, if you will, on display. And so this is a bit of what we're seeing here. It's, it's Jesus, confront, Peter confronting Jesus, first of all. And Jesus turning on his heel, literally that's what the text tells us, turning on his heel and saying, get behind me, Satan. And you can, you can appreciate the intensity of what's going on here. Jesus has just told his disciples that he's on the way to Jerusalem, that he'll be given over to the very people that should be responsible for the well-being of Israel, spiritually speaking, and are not. And he will be killed. And then in three days, he will rise from the dead. And whenever we head into something with kind of an increasing intensity, it's easy to find ourselves a little bit more uh, susceptible to doubt, to be wanting to know if, if things could change. And in the midst of this, Peter comes along and says, you don't have to do it. You shouldn't do it. This isn't part of the plan. And in that moment, Jesus realizes that that's not a message from his heavenly father who has led him quite clearly in this direction. Instead, it is a message from Satan that wants to get him off his mission, that wants to sidetrack him literally and figuratively. And so because of the intensity of what's going on and the fact that the Lord recognizes where this is coming from, he responds by, re by speaking back to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So just earlier, last week we looked at Peter who had said, you know, that you are the son of God. And, and, and Jesus had told him, you know, man hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. But it's the same Peter it's the same messenger, but now he has a very different message. And, and the Lord knows the origin of this message. So he responds to Peter in the way that he does. And I think we can kind of press into that intensity that the Lord feels and I think take instruction from it. There's times when we are feeling stressed, when we are feeling like all that we've been working for is coming to some kind of culmination. 
and yet the enemy tries to throw things to get us off track, we, we need to see that that is from not you know, where it's coming from, that it's trying to get us off the plan that God would have for us. And to be able to respond in kind, to be able to call it out for what it is. It's okay at times to, we should be looking at times of intensity for the enemy to come at us with some kind of uh, dart or some kind of challenge to us that we might not fulfill what God would have for us. And I say that just as really by introduction, because the Lord doesn't leave Peter in this place. He doesn't just rebuke him and that's it. Rather, he then uses that as a teachable moment because it says that he says to his disciples, he then begins to explain to them, as Dean was just reading, what, what is required. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he not only has to go through what I'm going through, he has to deny himself. Well, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think there's a few things that, that Jesus is pointing out in the middle of this. I think, first of all, he's trying to tell his disciples that the reality of kingdom living is greater than we can see. We just see that what is in front of us in this lifetime. But the real reality, the far expansive life that he has for us, the eternal life that is in store for us, that what that means in, in all its glory, we only get a glimpse of here. So our reality is far greater than we can see. But he's also telling his disciples that their allegiance to him is deeper than they can realize. Our, our alignment with who Christ is, what he is doing in our life, is, is far deeper, I think, than we are aware of or give him credit for, and we'll explore that. And then finally, the things that they need to do in order to respond is actually less than they imagine. And so that's an interesting contrast, and we'll look at the texts that speak to that. So when Jesus is laying out what is the reality that of, of his kingdom, it is greater than they can see. It's greater than we can see. We can only see maybe some outlines of a good life, something that we aspire to in this world. But the Lord has a whole kingdom in mind, a whole eternity in mind. He realizes, and he explains that to them. When the fullness of reality comes, he says, the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then they will repay to each person according to what he has done. The Lord knows that this time, this life that we are in, is, is brief, and it is not to be a place where we have our final, you know, drop this if you're okay with that. It, it, it's not a place where we have our final reward or our final place. It is actually a means, it is a way to move forward into the kingdom and not only for ourselves, but also to take as many people and encourage as many people as we can to be a part of that invitation that Christ has. And that's actually kind of encouraging and that should expand our horizon, expand our worldview to see and to want to embrace the reality that Christ is introducing to us. If we see the reality only in this life, then we are in jeopardy of actually losing it. But if we see that our life is about Christ and about becoming more like him and about being on his mission, then that is what actually gives us life. But he is setting it up because our allegiance to what God's call is in our life is actually deeper than we realize. It's not to, to follow Jesus is not primarily a one-time decision, although it's often framed that way. The one-time decision is actually the start of a call to discipleship. It is actually the beginning of a life spent in him 
And it is a life that actually takes us into places that perhaps we'd be resistant, we'd rather not go, we clearly know they're not comfortable, we know they'll be challenging to us. And why is that? I mean, like, because I don't know about you, but I have to confess there have been times, often, particularly when I was younger, when I just thought, you know, somehow Jesus was to make my agenda firmer, it was to actually bring it to reality, it was to make it, you know, what I couldn't do by myself. But that's really not the Christian life. It is very, God gives us good things to do. He gives us time. He gives us talent. He gives us uh, provision. But it's all to be in the service of what his plan is for, for each of us. And so our allegiance is deeper than, than we realize. Not a one-time decision. I was sharing with Jared and Kate today. We, we have, some of us have gotten together as guys for a summer book club. We're reading Andy Crouch's Strong and Weak. And, and Crouch talks about it in terms of flourishing. What does it mean to live that Christian life? To flourish is to be, to manifest the character of Christ. To flourish is to be on the mission for Christ. And to do that, you know, faithfully, even while it may not be perfectly, we are moving forward with him. But he says this, because he talks, as the chapters go on, he talks about the necessity of suffering, the necessity of of picking up our cross, as Jesus is saying in this text, and following him. And Crouch says this. He says, without a doubt, it is the greatest paradox of flourishing. It is only found on the, that that it is only found on the other side of suffering. Specifically, our willingness to actively embrace suffering. And then he, he asks and answers this question. But why is this necessary? Because of the extraordinary grip of idols over our world. The idols are all the forces that whisper the promises of control, invulnerable power and independence, and then having seduced us with these promises, enslave us to their demands and blind us with their distorted view of the world. And so Jesus is very much in touch with and has just experienced an aspect of this great battle, this epic struggle between what God's call is on our life and the ways that the enemy wants to get us off track. It has come through his very good friend and key disciple, Peter himself. So the enemy of our souls brings all kinds of idols that, you know, claim to offer what can only come from Christ. The enemy offers a version of spirituality to satisfy our, our that quest that we have for the, the, the divine. But it, it's a natural, you know, that, that God-given desire to know him that God puts in everyone. But the spirituality that the enemy offers or the world offers makes no demands on us. It's not truly relational tends to be more rooted in our own intellectual or emotional desires or makeup. Sometimes the enemy offers us a version of life that doesn't require commitment to other people or repentance or hardship. When we grow tired of our spouse, it's because things change and we are different people now. We've grown apart, but we still care for each other. These are just echoes that you hear in the culture today. We haven't really offended anyone, but we are sorry if they have taken offense over anything we possibly could have said. Sometimes hardships of our own making, we prefer to uh, sign and describe to the actions of others. But all these things are ways that we tend to kind of shape and build our own lives around our own desires and our own wants. The The world has its own version of salvation, both in terms of what is meaningful in life and what life, if any, may be after this one. But these idols are just that. And they become idols, however, if somehow we, whatever might grip us or whatever might grip somebody we care about, if that has become more important than their pursuit of God, if I want God plus wealth, 
then it's an idol. If I want God plus reputation, the reputation becomes an idol. If I think I need anything more than Jesus, other than who he is and what he has for me, other than to follow him, I'm in danger of a type of idolatry, and I need to press into that. I need to understand that. I need to bring it before him. If there is any aspect of what John writes in his first letter of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, this is what the world offers us. If there's any aspect of that, our allegiance to Christ, to follow him, to pick up our cross and come after him, will help us stay away from that, will help us to put those things that are ultimately going to result in our destruction away from us. And that's the problem with idols. They, they seem as life-saving strategies, but in the end, they are places that bring us death. And so there's no real negotiation with them. This is what Jesus is trying to convey. Ultimately, to pursue an idol is somewhat of an act of suicide. And I think of, you know, we know that if we continue to live with something more important than the Lord, we're in great danger of death. If we have no regard for him, death will be what we should expect, according to what Jesus has said. I think of a, a way that's described that in, uh, in Lord of the Rings. I've, I've read them, but I'm more familiar with the movies. If you looked at the, the last movie, The Return of the King, you know that right at Mount Doom, at the very end, the climactic scene, where Gollum finally gets the ring of power in his hands. He is absolutely ecstatic. He's delighted. He finally has reclaimed what has claimed his life long ago. And as he falls off the cliff and descends into the, the lava that will uh, in, take his life in a moment, he is happy up until the very time he hits. And then he realizes before he sort of is enclosed and seen as he just sort of is enclosed by the molten lava, you just see this look of surprise on his face at the very last moment. I, I didn't expect this. And then the ring falls away from him as it always has. And I think we preach and we come alongside our friends and our family members that don't know the Lord because out of that desire that they would share in the life of Christ. Oh, he is the only source of life. If there was another source, we'd be happy to offer it. But it is only in him that we have life that is eternal. It is only in him, frankly, that we have a life that is worth living even now. And so... That allegiance, that call to be with the Lord on his way to Calvary, on the way to Golgotha, to suffer as Crouch talks about, is, is but for a moment, but it calls for a response. And the response that I think our texts are pointing us to is this. It's actually less than we imagine. Because I don't know about you, as I was in this text, I, I had to kind of take stock. What are the things... That I, that I would like God to somehow bless that are more about me than, than him. Uh, anything that we do good, some, well, can have a shadow side. If I preach a message, I want that to have a, an impact, but I also want that to reflect on preaching. If I do an endeavor, I want that to be for the glory of God, but I also want it to accrue to my benefit and to my reputation. All of us have, can be aware of sort of those dual motivations um, but if I begin to skew one above the other, if I begin to uh, prefer one and think about more me than God, then I'm in danger of, of leaning towards the idolatrous side of these things. God is lavish in the things that he gives us. He gives us many things to use for his glory. And we can use them for that or we can use them for our own reputation. 
So the response that is, I think, before us from the scriptures is this. If any of these things are kind of connecting with you and God is speaking to you about something that may be in your life in this category, something that's hindering, something that's causing you to delay following Christ, picking up that cross, that sense of suffering, that sense of, I don't want to do this, but I know you're calling me to it, then I think the first thing we do is, as was read in the Jeremiah Old Testament passage, we just repent. You know, it's, if you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me, says Jesus. And it's just like a repentance is agreement. Lord, I'm sorry. I've gotten off track. Would you help me to be on the track that you're calling me to be on? Would you help me pick up my cross if I need to do that? Would you give me the motivation to do that? And the other part of it is Romans 12 too, the New Testament reading, is to, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's such a great image. Paul is writing mostly to to Jews, well, Jews and Gentiles in this, but that image of a sacrifice, they know a sacrifice is not alive to bear them. You're not going to be a, a live sacrifice for, <laughs> for a long time. So to offer yourself as a living sacrifice is a sense to say, Lord, my life belongs to you. Not about doing things just for me, but I give you my life. And so to, to do that on a, a regular basis, sacrifices in the Old Testament were offered repeatedly. But I think there's that image here that Paul is giving us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice on a repeated basis. Lord, here's my life today. Help me to be in that place where I can faithfully live for you, that I can represent you, that I can pursue that call and follow you into a hard conversation at work, into um, bearing down in more prayer for those around me, for my children, for my colleagues. Um, more than I would have planned. Would you help me um, deal with my fears or anxieties, which can often be signs of our own sense of um, not being fully formed in him? I'm not sure how many people in scripture are actually anxious in the presence of Jesus, but I can't think of any. So when we are in the presence of the Lord, when we're offering ourselves as living sacrifices, we are, in a sense, moving into his peace. We are, in a sense, saying, Lord, I give you my life, and in return, I want to receive whatever you have for me in this moment. And then as a practical way to do that, and I'll close with this, there's an Ignatian exercise called the, the Daily Examine. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a, it's a prayer of consciousness. It usually comes at the end of the day, and it says, Lord, where in this day that I've, you've just given me, have I sensed your movement, your presence specifically? You know, and usually what you'll find is it's in a place where you found that you were acting out the presence of Christ. You were doing something on his behalf. You are an agent of mercy or an act of kindness, something like that. And the Holy Spirit will call that to mind. But then after that, you say, Lord, where was it that I was most distant from, from that sense of you? Maybe that's when I was thinking a lot about me and not so much about him. Maybe that was when I was thinking about or, or opening up sort of a, a closet where I have some old idols that we're just sort of getting nostalgic for. I, I don't know what it was. But, but that practice allows us to keep short accounts with the Lord. And as he does in his own gentle and loving way, as he brings those things to mind, both where we were pleasing him and delighting him by our, our sense of living out his call in our lives, being his character, and where we also were farther away from him and distant from him, he will 
forgive us for those if we seek that. He will reset, if you will. He will allow us to be uh, and remind us that we are always and ever his children, that we are always and ever his disciples, that we always and ever can pick up our cross and follow him this day. And he will refresh us in the course of that evening. And so I have found that personally to be really helpful, just to kind of, it allows me to just kind of push the day behind me. They're not all, you know, I don't live these days perfectly, but I live them faithfully as much as I can. So doing that through the examine, doing that through offering uh, ourselves as a living sacrifice will allow us to be on the road that God calls us to be now and in the days ahead. If we do that, the brief life that we have, we'll be able to look back on the perspective from eternity and to be glad for every challenge, every hardship, every aspect of suffering. That doesn't make it necessarily easier in this time, but it does put it in perspective. And so that's my prayer as we close, that we would have that perspective of eternity, that we would know that that allegiance to the Lord is deeper, that we know that the reality is wider, and that the things we need to do to align ourselves with Him are not that dramatic, but they are small things, but they are daily things. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.